Our scripture scripture passage for this morning will be from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29. And if you happen to be using our pew Bibles, and we do hope you will have a Bible open to follow along, both in the reading and also in the preaching of God's word, uh, you will find it on page 1170. At least it starts on 1170 and continues on to 1171. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12 page 1170 and 71, beginning at verse 19. Verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded quote if even an animal touches the mountain it must be stoned end quote the sight was so terrifying that Moses said I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, How much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God our Father, this is A terrible and frightening scene. You speaking directly to your people in a voice that moves them to awe and fear. And yet, here the writer of Hebrews, by your spirit, says, We have not come to that mountain, but we have come to the mountain established by Jesus Christ in his blood by God's grace, through our faith. 
So the call is to believe and not to be condemned. And we ask you, Lord, that as Pastor Yuri comes and preaches this morning, that we will hear your word through him in such a way as that we will believe, be changed, and walk away from this place new creations. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the sermon I preached a couple of weeks ago, I invited you to imagine, imagine a time in the distant past. This morning, I'm going to once again invite you to use your imagination, but today we're not going to go back in history. Today, we are imagining an alternative present, a world that resembles today, but is slightly different, slightly off. So imagine that you're treating your kids or your grandkids to an event that means a lot to you. Something that you really enjoy and and it means so much to you that you, you really want to share it with them. You want to share it with them so that someday they may enjoy it for the rest of their lives and it's something that's just so important to you. So, so you could think maybe this is for you a Bombers game or a Jets game or maybe going to see the Nutcracker for somebody from my, my uh, side of the tracks, I guess. So you get all ready to go. You're wearing your jerseys or your fancy clothes and everybody in the family has been looking forward to this special night that you're going to enjoy together. So you're laughing and you're talking excitedly with the kids as you drive downtown and you park your car and walk with them to the True North Center or the Centennial Concert Hall. And eventually you get yourself settled in your seats. There are lots of people around you and the arena or the auditorium is just humming. You can feel the excitement in the air. And the game or the ballet starts Pretty soon, your kids that you brought with you kind of get a little restless. They can't really see, and they don't really understand what's going on. Pretty soon, they start to whine, and they kick the backs of the seats in front of them, and they say, I'm bored. And they start asking you to get them a drink or to take them to the bathroom. But you're not worried. And why not? Because in this alternate reality, you know that there will be activities planned, especially for the children. You know that you won't have to sit with your kids for much longer. Some very kind and dedicated volunteers will soon come around and take them off your hands to give them a snack and teach them in an age-appropriate way all about the rules of hockey or the story of the ballet or to teach them about the instruments of the orchestra or how to sing, here we go, Jets, here we go. And you're happy about this because you wouldn't want the kids to have a bad experience at the arena or at the concert hall. So you send them off to their activities because you want to make sure that when they're a little older, they can really participate in the whole exciting NHL experience, really enter in and understand the power and the majesty of classical ballet so that it will be something that they will always cherish and maybe even share with their kids one day. Now, 
most of you will immediately recognize how ridiculous this sounds. To go to all the trouble of bringing your kids to experience a real live game, a real live ballet, and the moment they get antsy, to take them away from it? Instinctively, we know that to do that would be to defeat the whole purpose of bringing them in the first place. You want your kids to have the real deal, the whole experience. You are not really going to worry too much about them not understanding everything about what's going on. Because you know that the fastest way for them to actually get into it, to begin to understand and to develop a love for it, is to have them with you. Enjoying the whole atmosphere. And, and it's okay if they just muddle through the things that they don't totally get. You know that the more that they're exposed to it, far from hating it, the experience of being bored and confused will spur them on to assemble the fragments of their experience into a complete picture, something that makes sense to them, something that means something to them, something that they will one day want to share with their kids. So with with special events or, or with things that we consider really essential, like education, we wouldn't dream of depriving our kids of this core activity, of the essence of the thing itself. And yet this is what we have come to accept as normal, even desirable, in a church setting. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that no one, or almost no one here, can even remember a time when it wasn't standard operating procedure to send the kids out midway or at some time during during the service to Sunday school or children's church. But it really wasn't all that long ago, barely one or two generations past our living memory, that it would have seemed just as strange to send your kids out of a Sunday morning worship service as it does to send your kids off to enjoy some children's programming in the middle of a Jets game or a Bombers game. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that it's over this same time period where it's become normal in North America to segregate worship services that for the first time in history, it's become more likely for kids to reject the faith of their parents than to retain it. In about the span of one or two lifetimes, it has become the exception rather than the rule when churches are able to successfully share Christ with the kids that grow up in their midst. I'm not telling you anything new here. It's, it's something we can all see and that we've lived over the last few decades. But think about it. Over the exact time period that children's church programming has become more and more sophisticated, more intense, designed to be an age-appropriate alternative to worshiping together with the adults, the statistics we read and our own eyes tell us that it is doubtful that all that effort has actually borne fruit. And it's not that it has been a wasted effort. I believe that it's been a misdirected effort. What I mean is that the work of the army of Christian educators over the past 80 years or so is 
valuable, and it has an important role to play. But we've made it almost impossible for kids to develop a love for the church, and more importantly, a love for Jesus, because we have systematically removed them from the very situations where they're most likely to encounter him. Let me put this another way. Yes, we should have Sunday school. We should offer Bible classes for everyone, every age group. But I believe that the time during the Sunday morning worship service is not when we should hold these classes. And it's because a worship gathering is something that's entirely different from a Sunday school class. The worship gathering is the main event for a church, and the class is what supports that. The worship is primary, the class is secondary. The class may be helpful, but only if the worship is considered essential. The class is a place where we can learn about Jesus. But the worship gathering is the place that the Bible tells us we will actually meet Jesus in person. Well, this conviction is why the vision that I named Committed to Glory, a vision that I feel that the Lord has given me for Bethesda Church from the book of Hebrews, makes priorities of preaching and what I called integrated worship. That is, worship services where everyone is warmly welcomed and invited, yes, even expected to participate, including children. Being committed to glory is to be committed to the Bible and to prayer. That is to stand on God's unchangeable truth and to depend on his unassailable power. But also, committing to glory means recognizing that the preaching of the gospel will always be the occasion in which Jesus reveals himself most clearly. And forcefully, Jesus manifests himself in the people of God through the preaching of his word. Jesus makes himself known as we gather to proclaim his word. And as we hear his word proclaimed, he makes the gathered called out ones more and more like himself. If that's true... If that's actually what preaching is for, it's unthinkable that we would deprive our children of it. Doing so produces the kind of situation that we're seeing in evangelical churches everywhere, where kids grow up in Sunday school knowing a fair amount about Jesus, but not really knowing him. And studies are showing that in the past 30 years, many and maybe even the majority of kids who grow up in churches have already turned their backs on God before they leave for college. And this is not because there are alternatives that are so much more attractive. It's because we don't urge or even expect them to stay in the worship gathering, where the Bible tells us that Jesus is present. 
Instead, we persist in providing alternatives for them where even if they're enjoying themselves, they're much less likely to meet Jesus. At least, it seems to be what the Bible implies. We have to come to terms with the fact that this strategy that we've adopted over the last couple of three, four generations is failing. We need to decide to at least give our children the opportunity to meet Jesus where the Bible says that he is. Because those of us who truly know Jesus know that anyone who knows him can never really turn their back on him. If you know Jesus, if you really know him, you know that you could no more toss Jesus aside than you could discard your own mother or father or snub your dearest friend or insult your favorite brother or sister. So that's the argument that I'm going to be making today. When God's people gather for worship and to hear the gospel preached, we gather around Jesus, to know Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to proclaim Jesus, to adore Jesus. I know that right now very few people will agree with me about the importance or at least the urgency of this, of integrated worship. As I said earlier, even if you're someone who grew up going to church, it would have been rare for you to actually have to sit through an entire worship service. And for people who are right now caring for kids, the idea of sitting with squirmy little ones through a long sermon just seems like a non-starter. Not only you know it will affect your own ability to pay attention, but you also assume that any kids who are forced to sit through church will just grow up to hate it and eventually just refuse to come with you to church. That's the conventional wisdom. That's what we all assume. The stats, though, don't seem to point in this direction. There is no evidence that kids who are bundled off to children's programs on Sunday mornings are any more likely to retain their faith into their teenage years and on into adulthood. If anything, the opposite is true. What I have seen is that kids who are taught very early in life that they are integral to the worship service, that they should learn the songs and sing them, that they should pray along with the rest of the congregation, and yes, that they should learn to sit through sermons, even ones they find boring and that they may not understand. These are the kids who are much more likely to stick around in the long run. I've seen it in the lives of my own kids. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the lives of many families who share the same conviction that I do. Kids who are conditioned to stay in the worship service tend to stay in the faith. Why? Why is that the case? Now, in a way, the why of it is almost irrelevant since staying in church was always the default. It was what everyone assumed to be good and right and natural throughout all of Christian history. Not to mention the fact that it just works. But it is helpful to understand the why of it, because to answer that why question forces us to search and discover just what a Christian worship service is. What is going on? 
when we gather on a Sunday morning? Or to put it the way that I did on the sign outside this week, what in heaven are we here for? What are we here for? The answer that the Bible gives is the one in the passage that Mark read for us a few moments ago, which I summarized in the central truth of today's message. When God's people gather for worship and to hear the gospel preached, we gather around Jesus to know him, to enjoy him, to proclaim him, to adore him. And the specific verse we're studying this morning puts it even more simply. We come to Jesus. We come to Jesus and to the sprinkled blood. This is, in fact, the climax of the whole book of Hebrews. You could even say that it is the basic message of the whole Bible. We come to Jesus and to the sprinkled blood. The preacher is here scanning all of recorded human history, all of the things he's talked about up to this point, the ways that God has worked in the past, and how that relates to the way he's working in the present. He weighs all the warnings against shrinking back with the most arresting, most compelling reasons for the people of God to persevere, and he arrives at the most positive, the most singular truth, the most astounding fact that God's people can claim, can own one We have come to Jesus. And two, we have come to the sprinkled blood. Now this is true of the Christian at all times. It doesn't stop being true on Sunday afternoons when we go our separate ways. But without a doubt, the situation that the preacher of Hebrews has in mind is the worship gathering. That is, he's thinking of the visible assembly of the church and what it really means, what is actually happening in the spiritual realm when we gather. And this is the reason he contrasts it with that other meeting in space and time, that physical, material gathering of God's people at Mount Sinai. When God came down in fire that really burned, And smoke that really made your eyes water. With the blistering sound of a trumpet and a voice that reverberated from one horizon to the other. That is when God appeared before his people in an obvious and overwhelming and utterly terrifying way. The preacher compares and contrasts these two mountain meetings. Now, there are some obvious things about these two meetings that are different, and a few things that are similar. One of the things that is the same is the fact that these are both literal gatherings. He's not saying that one is actual and the other is symbolic. No, they're both very real. That is, they both feature the actual coming together of the people of God. The main difference between these two mountain meetings is that at Sinai, heaven comes to earth. But in Zion, the church is born into heaven. At Sinai, heaven comes to earth. 
But in Zion, the church is born into heaven. Now, when heaven drops down to earth, the earth is consumed. That's what the fire is and the smoke. At Mount Sinai, anyone could see this happening. The fire and the lightning. They could smell the smoke. They could hear the thunder. Now, there was no choice whether or not to gather. It was not an assembly that God's people could have skipped out on, even if they wanted to. Hebrews calls this the mountain that can be touched, although to do so would result in death. But in the case of that second mountain he talks about, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the people who are gathered on earth are translated into the heavenly reality. That is, by joining an earthly gathering like this one right now, which we can see and we can hear, God's assembled church is participating in a reality that is more real and life-giving than anything else on earth. It is an eternal gathering. Do you believe that? It may not register on our natural senses, but by faith, we can get a true sight of it. The one mountain was obviously powerful, obviously powerful, even it was frightening. The other one, since it can't be perceived by our ordinary senses, can be laughed off, dismissed as imaginary. But it's clear that the preacher considers the heavenly mountain to be the mountain that is more real. Mount Sinai may be the historical reality. But Mount Zion is the eternal reality. Mount Sinai is the created reality, the reality that can and will be shaken, Hebrews says. Mount Zion is the reality that will ultimately remain. The preacher of Hebrews describes Mount Zion as a place of darkness and fear, whereas he reveals Mount Zion as a place of light. And joy. Still, according to the preacher, it is not only Mount Sinai that warns. If you have your Bibles open, still take a look at chapter 12, verse 25. Both mountains are mountains of warning. The warning from Mount Sinai was so obvious, so overwhelming that it was unavoidable for the people. And still the preacher tells us in verse 25 that when the fire and the smoke died down, when the trumpet and the thundering voice faded away, that warning was somehow refused. Now, Mount Zion, by contrast, the heavenly reality, heavenly reality into which God ushers us when we gather as a church, is so brilliantly backlit with grace that it's invisible to us. It can even seem utterly unremarkable 
to us. That it is easy for us to miss it or to ignore it or to take it for granted. But to refuse it, the preacher says in verse 25, to refuse him who speaks is unthinkable. Now, don't miss the fact that the preacher in Hebrews is not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to the disciples of Jesus Christ. When he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, the preacher is calling out the church. Not people who haven't yet accepted or believed that Jesus is God. The preacher is utterly baffled by Christians who take the worship gathering for granted. In fact, the whole reason he's writing this letter is that they seem willfully ignorant of the fact that it is Jesus who we are coming before when we gather to worship. So what's so special about going to church? Why is it important for the whole family of God, including kids, to be in church? He just said it in that verse, verse 24, the climax that he's been building up to through his whole sermon. According to the preacher of Hebrews, it is in church that we come to Jesus. It is in church that Jesus speaks to us. So what is so bad about missing church and does it really hurt our kids to remove them midway through the service? Consider what he said back in chapter 10, let us not give up meeting together. And here in chapter 12, we see why. To skip out on church regularly is to refuse to come into the presence of Jesus. To remove children from the service is to rob them of the opportunity to to hear the voice of Jesus. To neglect the worship gathering, to shrink back from attending church is to refuse him who speaks from heaven. It is to be in open rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this may hurt, but there should be nothing controversial in what I'm saying. This was the common understanding until very recently. Until the late 20th century, no churches and very few people who called themselves Christians would ever think that they could miss church without missing something that was vital to their faith. And that vital element is the very presence of Jesus himself. They always knew that although God is everywhere, there is something unique that takes place when the church gathers for worship And in particular, when the church gathers to hear the word of God preached. And here, at the risk of being misunderstood, I'm going to go further. And I must go further because it is exactly in this part of the worship service that we now consider utterly impossible for children. That they have the greatest opportunity to be in the presence of Jesus. To hear the voice of of Jesus. It is in the sermon that Jesus speaks to us. It is through the voice of a mere man that the God of heaven thunders. 
that Mount Zion flashes before our mind's eye, that we can almost hear the joyful shouts of the angels, that the spirits of the righteous made perfect are manifest before us. Now again, I underline that I'm saying this with caution because there is a danger that I will be misunderstood. I am not saying... I'm not saying that any time a preacher opens his mouth, he somehow conjures up a heavenly reality. There is nothing special in the preacher himself. There's nothing special in the preacher. He's not smarter necessarily or even more persuasive or more insightful than anyone else in the congregation It's not his fancy words or his learning or even his moral uprightness that brings the church into the presence of Jesus. Here's what I am saying. Only to the extent that the gospel permeates the preacher's preaching. Only to the extent that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the mediator of the new covenant is lifted up only to the extent that his sprinkled blood is shown to be a better word, the best word, the sweetest word that is beyond our wildest dreams. Only then are we brought to Zion. Only then are we in the presence of Jesus in that unique and special way. Only then do we hear the very voice of Jesus, the very voice of him who warns us from heaven, the voice that we dare not refuse. On the other hand, to the extent that a preacher starts to think that his role is to dispense advice, or to wag his finger, or worse, to give a political opinion, and I'm going to go even farther, to the extent that he starts to teach the Bible or theology for its own sake, he's leading the congregation away from Zion, away from Jesus, dismantling the new covenant, discounting the sprinkled blood, elevating natural words over the divine word that the sprinkled blood of Jesus proclaims. The preacher is just a herald. Nothing more. The preacher is not a life coach or a moralist, or a pundit. The preacher is not even mainly a scholar or a Bible teacher if what that means is to give lectures that don't connect us to Jesus, that don't challenge us to enter into God's big story of the redemption of the rebellious and fallen world. The preacher is a humble herald. He's nothing more His job is to announce the king. His job is to point the king out. And to the extent that the preacher heralds the king, Jesus, only then does the sound and sense of his words, these rough words floating on a feeble breath, he draws the faithful. Only then he draws girls and boys no less than women and men to meet their king afresh in Zion.
That is the why of the church gathering. The why of the preacher. That is the reason for sermons. Really the only reason to preach sermons. To be a herald of the king is truly the preacher's only reason for being. He calls out the king's called out ones. He gathers the king's gathered ones. He shepherds them. He leads them to Jesus by mustering up the courage to proclaim Jesus when they would rather hear about the idols that typically hold their attention. To proclaim the better word of the sprinkled blood of Jesus when what they want is a sensible strategy to secure and grow the church in the real world. To proclaim Jesus and his blood to the people of God when they have all but forgotten that he is the first and the last. That he and his blood are all, all that they need. The preacher is a herald. Nothing more. This is what we read about in the biblical book of Hebrews. There is no other book like it in the Bible. It's a sermon written down. A sermon that started life as a preached word like this one to an established congregation like this one to who were assembled for worship just as we are. The book of Hebrews is itself the proof that true preaching... The herald of the king, the heralding of the king in the midst of the gathered church brings us to Jesus. Hebrews demands that we acknowledge that this is just what happens when God's people gathered to hear the word preached. And as we study the book of Hebrews, we see that the preacher heralds Jesus from beginning to To end. His whole purpose is to bring his hearers to this place. To Mount Zion. To Jesus. And to his sprinkled blood. Now as I said earlier, I don't expect that everyone is going to agree with me today that having kids of all ages in the worship service is a good idea. And I'm not going to force the issue before our congregation is ready for it. But I will keep preaching about it. I will keep having conversations one-on-one with you about it. Because the more I study this, the more of the history of the church that I know, the more statistics that I see, and the more of the biblical teaching on the church that I understand, that it is the whole gathered family of God that is the main way that God has chosen to work in the world. The more convinced I am that this decision that churches made a few generations ago to remove children from the worship service was a disastrous misstep. I believe that it's one of the biggest reasons that we're finding it harder and harder to pass along the faith to the younger generations. I'm sorry to say that despite our best efforts, most kids are not having life-changing encounters 
with Jesus. Where will they have them? The Bible says, right here. Do you trust what the Bible says? In taking them away from the worship gathering and from preaching, we have robbed them of a major opportunity, the main opportunity to meet with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So what would we need to do to turn back the clock and make it more appealing for families to have their kids stay with them through the singing and through the sermons? Well, of course, we would all need to adjust our expectations. First of all, me, as the preacher, I would have to expect kids to be here. Listening to what I'm saying right now. And I have to plan my sermons accordingly. Now, I don't think that means dumbing things down. I think that kids are a lot smarter and more adaptable than we tend to give them credit for. But it does mean being imaginative and disciplined so that the flow of my words is as clear and as concise as it can possibly be. And it actually means addressing the things that kids are concerned about. Anticipating the kinds of questions that kids will ask. It's not an easy thing, but it will require, and we have centuries of people who've done it successfully to look back to. What other expectations would need to change? Of course, you and the congregation would need to expect our services to be noisier. And the sermon would not be so quiet, which is lovely, of course, to be able to hear things very clearly and not feel distracted. But I don't think that the the trade-off is worth it. So the congregation would need to be willing to express patience towards the kids who would be among us and love for the parents and for their little ones who are bound to have bad days along with their good days. And lastly, parents and caregivers of small children would have to be willing to accept that their Sunday morning worship experience would be a little bit chaotic, at least for a season of their life. And as a personal aside, I should say that I do understand this struggle intimately. It wasn't that long ago that Michelle and I were wrestling with toddlers trying to keep them occupied and engaged, bringing stuff with us, a whole bag full of stuff for them to do. Our our kids were almost always with us throughout the whole service, even when they were really little. So I am sympathetic with the challenges that would come along with the change that I'm proposing. Now, sometimes when I talk to people about this, they assume that my kids must have been unusually well-behaved. But that was not always the case, and especially not in church. As toddlers in church, they were just as challenging as everyone else's kids can be. It was hard. Right? (laughs) But because we wanted them there, because we thought it was essential 
We put up with it, and we persevered. And because they knew that there was no option, no other option, right? They were going to stay with us whether they liked it or not. They got used to it. They were conditioned to it. And in fact, they did end up liking it, preferring to stay with us than to go with the little kids. If you don't believe me, you can ask them. (laughs) Of course, they frustrated with us often, especially when they were little. But eventually they learned to listen and to engage with what was going on. Why? Not because of anything we did or that was going on up at the front necessarily that was so exciting to them, but because they started to recognize the voice of the one who has infinitely more to say to them than I or any parent or teacher or preacher ever could. When we faithfully gather to worship, Jesus is the one who speaks to us. To settle that point, I'm going to set you some homework. And to introduce that homework, I'd invite you to open your Bibles and turn back a few pages from where we were. Turn back a few pages with me, close to the very beginning of Hebrews. It's page 1162 in the Pew Bible. Page 1162, chapter 2 of Hebrews, starting in verse 10, just three verses. Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 12, page 1162 in the Pew Bibles. If you know the book of Hebrews, you'll know that one of the great truths that the preacher drives home again and again is that Jesus is our great high priest. What that means is that he is the mediator between God and the rest of humanity. He is the one who leads the congregation, leads us in worship. And here in chapter 2, Verse 10 through 12, we have the very first hint of that role that Jesus plays and of the importance of his being fully human and fully understanding what we go through in order that he can actually serve as a true go-between. So let's read chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. The preacher says, In bringing many sons to glory... It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy, that is Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them Brothers and sisters, he says, Jesus says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. So here the preacher of Hebrews puts the words of Psalm 22 into the mouth of Jesus. Jesus. 
This is not the first time in Scripture that we have Psalm 22 in the mouth of Jesus, right? What does Jesus cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Gospels. But the author, the preacher of Hebrews says that it is Jesus himself who speaks the words of the Psalms. And it's, of course, not the only place in the Bible that Jesus speaks the words of the Psalms. Specifically, Jesus says here, I will declare your name to my brothers and my sisters in the presence of the congregation. I will declare your name, O Lord God, to my brothers in the presence of Of the congregation, I will sing your praises. That's verse 22 of Psalm 22. So the words that he quotes are not the words, as I said, that we're all familiar with. The ones from the beginning of Psalm 22 that Jesus cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry of desolation and loneliness... That expression of tearing pain of God himself being forsaken by God himself? Now these words from, in Hebrews are words from later in the psalm. They're words that express a renewed hope and a promise. The promise is that Jesus personally injects hope into the gathering of his people. In that psalm that starts off by expressing his sense of abandonment and betrayal, Jesus promises that he will be personally present in the midst of the gathered brothers, his gathered brothers and sisters, in the midst of the congregation. He promises to declare God's name, God's perfect character, God's mercy, God's grace, God's love in the assembly of his people. Jesus promises to speak. Jesus promises to minister to us in the formal worship gathering. So your homework this week is to read Psalm 22, but... To read it with an eye to considering, maybe in amazement, at least I did, considering in amazement how in praying this psalm, he's doing so in the eternal gathering on Mount Zion. The heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus, in praying this psalm, starts by expressing that feeling of abandonment by God. Jesus praying eternally in Mount Zion, expresses this feeling of abandonment by God, of betrayal by his friends and peers. I want you to consider as you read Psalm 22, starting yourself from that place of loneliness and thinking about how then Jesus looks back in history as you read it. You'll see that he does. When God clearly ministered to his ancestors, remembering that, How then Jesus places his hope in God and in God's work to redeem those very ones who betrayed him. And through that very act of betrayal, redeeming them. And as he does that, he inserts himself in the midst of the worship gathering. I will declare your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And finally, I want you to notice 
How at the end of the psalm, Jesus looks to the future, looks to how all the nations will worship. And then in those last two verses of Psalm 22, as Jesus looks down through the ages, he sees that it is the children who will lead the way in proclaiming the good news to their children and their children's children. That is, if we give them the chance to meet Jesus in the place where he says he can be found. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your word tells us that you are here. And not just that you have come down, but that you have translated us into the heavenlies. We are, right now, in Mount Zion, surrounded by thousands upon thousands of angels in festal assembly. We are, right now, with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We are, right now, have come to God. We have come to Jesus and to the sprinkled word, sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And Lord, you know I didn't have time to get into that today, but your sprinkled blood is the reason any of this is possible. We thank you, Lord, that you suffered the betrayal and abandonment that we read about in Psalm 22 so that you could stand in this eternal gathering and proclaim the name of God to us in all the mercy and grace and love that that entails. We ask that you would minister to us even right now, Lord, as we sing our final song. And give us, by your Spirit, the ability to praise you in spirit and in truth along with the throng atop Mount Zion. I pray it in the name of the King. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. I hope you'll consider staying with us and having a little bit of lunch um, with us in, in a few moments downstairs in the Fellowship Hall. As a word of blessing at the end of our service, I'd actually like to read just a few verses from Psalm 22. Jesus, speaking the words of the psalmist in the eternal assembly, says, You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. From you, he says, O Lord, comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Verse 30, Posterity, that's the future, that's kids, will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. 
they will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That's their children and their children's children. For he, the Lord, has done it. Go in his grace. Amen.